Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Author and business owner and mother, Jeannie Chauncey, once wrote, When both roles complement each other beautifully, we demonstrate to the world a picture of God's divine image that is breathtaking to behold. We demonstrate the union of Christ and His bride, the church. Rejecting our roles or revising them to suit our individual tastes and plans is blasphemy. I didn't say it. St. Paul did. So normally, as you know, when I come to a difficult text in the Bible that we need to work through, I usually have something pithy to say like, you know I love you, right? Well, this morning we find ourselves staring at a text that many preachers just simply don't want to preach on. In fact, I, I was actually looking for sermon titles you know, from other pastors to find out how they named their sermon you know, uh, for this particular text. And I found that one preacher had titled his sermon this way. He, he called it the scariest sermon I ever had to preach. Why? Well, because this, this text right here is probably the most hated and the most debated passage of Scripture in probably the entire Bible. Not to mention this text is perhaps one of the most abused and misused in all of the New Testament. And what makes it worse is the fact that this text, this is a text that most people, and I mean most people, have strong feelings about. And those feelings can be quite extreme on opposite ends of the spectrum. And this text, because of that, and because of the way that people, many people have interpreted this text, has the potential to really be divisive. It, it can divide churches. It has the, the potential to create arguments and create rifts between close friends. It seems that no matter how lovingly and gently you approach a text like this, someone is going to have their, their feelings hurt. And so, I don't have a pithy little statement this morning to prepare for you for this text, except to say this, hang in there. Right? Hang in there and, and hear me out. Don't just take part of what's being said here. Don't listen to the, the hot button things that you want to hear and then run with that. Like, Don't listen to just part of what the Word is saying and then make a premature conclusion and then stop listening. Instead, I want you to, to really lean in here and focus and listen attentively and hear what the Word of God has to say. And, and, and along with that, keep in mind this simple truth that you do know 
that I love you. Right? And the fact, that's why I'm here. That's why I continue to get up and do this job week after week and year after year is because I love you. That's why I have promised God and promised you to always tell you the truth because I love Him and I love you. Right? So just keep in mind that I do love you and, and trust the fact that out of that love, I have spent a long time preparing for this message. I have actually been studying 1 Timothy for years now. Like I actually studied through it on my own. I actually taught through it on a Friday morning class. I also taught on this through, uh, through with the church in Pakistan. And I'm going back through it again with fresh eyes. I have read this text more times than I can count. And I have studied it from every angle that I can find. And my aim then, because of that, is not to give you Sherman's opinion on this. My aim is to present to you the truth of the Scripture. That's why I'm asking you to hang in there. Right? Just be patient. Now with that, this text, as controversial as it is, and it has been, is actually one a vitally important text because it does communicate a vitally important truth about the church and about who we are. There are some who say that, you know, there's some who say that Paul, what he's talking about here, is really not that important or even relevant for today. And I, and I will say, right, wherever you land on this, it's not going to be an issue of salvation, right? But it's still important. What Paul says here does matter, right? Because 1 Timothy is the blueprint for how God is ordering the church in the world. In fact, that's why we're in this series, is we are walking through 1 Timothy Right? Because we want to grow in our understanding of God's church and how we are called to live and participate as part of that church. And, and this letter, along with 2 Timothy and the letter to Titus, has a great deal to teach us about church and about our theology of the church, which is called ecclesiology. Right? In fact, if there's one issue, and there's a lot of issues, but if there's a big issue that's facing the church today, is the church today has a very weak ecclesiology. People really simply don't know what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do. I want for us as a church to know those things. And so, so we're walking our way through this text. And, and I can assure you that this text is important. Every verse of 1 Timothy is important. All right. And more importantly, it's, it's more important than many people want it to be. Right? There is, I want you to know, sharp disagreement amongst Christians about what this text means. And that sharpness seems to be growing day by day, especially as our, our world embraces more and more postmodern philosophy. Right? And, and, and the reality is, is the perspectives on this text are all over the place. There are people who really come at this in, in some really broad angles. Some people look at this text and say, Paul wrote this to the people of Ephesus at that time, right? And because of that, it doesn't have any application for the church today. There are some people who, who will say that this text is not just for that time, but it's for, for all people at all time. Some will say that, that Paul is just talking about women not exercising abusive authority. Some will say that Paul is just talking about you know, wives not having you know, excessive authority over their husbands. 
Some will say that this text is about women never having any leadership roles inside of the church and never ever under any circumstances having any authority over men outside of the church. Some will say that this only applies to the church context. And some will say that this this applies outside the church as well. Some will say that this means women cannot teach at all in the church. And some will say this relates only to pastoral ministry. Others will say this has nothing to do with any of that, but Paul is just simply addressing behaviors that were, were brought into the church by the worshipers of Artemis at that time. And I can go on and on. I mean, believe me, I've read whole books on this particular text. There's lots of different opinions about the text. But hear me. It does not matter what other people say about this text. The important thing for us The thing that we need to get clear about is what Paul means by what he wrote. And more specifically, what did God mean by what he had Paul write? Because God had Paul write it. Now, there are some people who will say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian. And what that means is if Jesus said it, it's authoritative. But if Paul said it, it's not. Forgetting that Jesus is the author of all Scripture. What does the text actually mean the way God intended to, right? That's the central question we need to ask. What does it actually mean? Not what we think it means, right? Not what we hope for it to mean, not what we want it to mean, not what culture says that it means, not what grandma says that it means, not what the popular preachers in America will tell you that it means. What does the text actually mean the way that God intended for it to mean? That, brothers and sisters, is what we are after. And in order for us to get there, we need to look at another text and then ask ourselves two important questions. And the text I want you to turn to is just a little further to the right in your Bible. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16, Paul writes to Timothy at that time, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, excuse me, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Paul is saying that all Scripture is the Word of God, all of it. And Peter, in his letter, affirms that Paul's letters are authoritative and are, and are Scripture themselves. Paul is saying all Scripture is the Word of God which leads us to the first of two questions. And the first question that we have to settle in our minds is, do we believe that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God? Do we believe that Scripture, the Word of God, is what we have that's in this book? And here's the thing. If the answer is no, we don't believe that, then go home. There's not any reason to be here right now. There's not any reason to be in, in here, you know, listening to me, for sure. You can be mowing the, the, the lawn or laying around in the pool. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's Word, there's not any point for us to even talk about these things, because guess what? It is irrelevant for us to talk about those things. It doesn't matter. It's just a matter of opinion. If this is not the Word of God, we have other and better things to do. Right? All we're going to talk about is personal preferences. But if we do, though, if we actually believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that means we believe that the Bible 
is what Paul says that it is, that it is theonustos, or the very breath of God. And what we need then, if we believe that it is God's word, then what we need to do is ask ourselves a second question, and that is, will we or will we not submit ourselves to it? That's the question we have to ask. If the Bible is in fact God's word, will we trust it? Will we believe it? Will we obey it? Will we stand up for it? Will we agree with it? If the Bible is in fact the Word of God, will we submit ourselves in what, to what it says, even if we don't like what it says? You see, it's one thing to say that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, but it's a whole other thing to live a life that demonstrates that you actually believe what it's teaching. Now, I mention this because the root of every controversy in the Christian church has to do with these two issues, these two questions. You see, the, the issue we're facing here today isn't even the issue of the text. It's the issue of these two questions. Every controversy that faces the church today comes down to these two questions. Is the Bible really God's word? And, and if so, will we submit ourselves to it? I mean, just think about the controversies that the church faces today, like the truth of the doctrine of hell. That is easily classified by both of these controversies. Do you believe that the Word of God is the Word of God? And then do you believe what it's saying, actually saying about hell? And people will say, well, because some people make the statement, well, the Bible doesn't really teach hell. Really? Jesus talked more about hell than in, about any other subject. He talked a lot more about hell than he did heaven. In fact, we wouldn't even have a doctrine of hell if it wasn't for Jesus. Or how about the truth of the exclusive nature of Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? That's a, that's a doctrine people don't like. They don't like that truth. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what the text actually says. Do we believe what it's saying? Or how about the doctrine of original sin or the depravity of man or the sovereignty of God or the truth about God's design for marriage? By the way, hot topic in the month of June, right? It seems like you know, Christians are walking everywhere just kind of trying to stay out of trouble. Not, I don't want to even talk about that. I don't want to get engaged in that. Social media is, you know what that is. All the doctrines that you can think of that create controversy and that creates many hard feelings in the church is rooted in these two questions. Do we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And the sad truth is there are many people who call themselves Christians who don't really believe that the Bible is God's Word. There are people who call themselves Christians and say, well, I think the Bible is inspired, like an inspired book. I think that the Bible has spiritual truths. I believe that you know, God had a hand in its creation, but they don't believe that the Bible is God's own complete and perfect revelation of Himself to the world. And as long as they believe that, they're not going to have any basis at all for discerning the truth. Because the truth in, is what you make of it. You just decide which parts are true and which parts aren't. But if you do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then will you submit your heart to it? And there are a lot of Christians, truly born-again Christians, who love the Word and who love Jesus and who, who are all in to the best of their ability, who simply refuse at times to go where the text goes and submit their hearts and minds to what the Bible is teaching. And the reason for that is because usually what the Scriptures are teaching offends them. It, it hurts their feelings. It's hard for them to understand. It conflicts with their personal feelings about something. 
In fact, I think that we all, if we have any type of emotions, have struggled at times with the Scriptures. I know I have. There have been times where I have come to face, to face with God and the Scriptures and go, Lord, I'm struggling to accept that. I think we all have been there. Right? It's hard to turn off your emotions. Right? It is hard to put away the philosophical assumptions that we make, especially the philosophical assumptions that you have grown up with that you don't even know you have. It's hard to put away our upbringing. It's hard to put away the, the traditions that we grew up with. It's, it's hard. But it's something we must endeavor to do. We cannot allow ourselves and our preconceived ideas, no matter how emotionally attached we are to them, to rise above the text and what God is actually saying. If we're to know the truth, and fully benefit from the truth, we, we must conclude that the Bible is God's Word, and that we must be willing to submit ourselves to the truth, that the Word is actually what it, what it says. We must be willing to learn the truth, allow the truth to shape us and mold us, rather than us trying to shape the truth by our personal feelings and emotions and ideas. Right? And even if it's really, really hard, even if we, we don't like what the, what the Scriptures say, even if it offends us. I mean, I want you to know there are truths in the Bible. I mean, it would make, make my job really, really easy to be the most popular guy in town if the Bible actually said everybody goes to heaven, right? And that you can have any kind of relationship you want to, right? And there's no such thing as hell. People would love me and think I'm the nicest guy in the whole world. We must always allow God to be God and trust what He says especially with difficult texts like this one. So let us commit this morning as children of God to approach the text reverently, humbly, and allowing God to speak and be willing to submit our hearts and minds to the Word. So turn with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And Paul just jumps right in here and says, Let, wom let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I think before we can make any conclusions about what Paul is talking about here, I think the first question is we need to find out who he's talking about. Because there are a lot of opinions about that very question. What group of people is Paul actually talking about here? Now, obviously, he's talking about a woman or women, but which ones? What women is he talking about? Is it, is it the women in Ephesus? Is it the women in Asia Minor? Is it just the women in first century? Is it a particular type of woman? Right? Young women? Older women? Single women? Married women? How about unbelieving women or, or, or women in the church? You see, before we can actually build an understanding on the issue what Paul is addressing here, and before we can make any kind of application, we need to actually understand who it is that he's actually talking about when he says a woman here. Well, the word that Paul uses here in these two verses is, you know, for the word woman is the Greek gyne, right? Which you should be familiar with, I would think, right? Because it's from that word we get the word gynecologist or literally a woman, I mean, a, a doctor of women, right? A woman's doctor. And this word gyne has, as a range of meaning, it can mean 
a woman generically. It can, it can mean a wife, or it can mean the expression, my lady. Right? Now, there are people who were quick to jump on this and say, well, that word obviously means wife. And the reason why Paul is saying that is that married women are to learn quietly and submissive and not exercise authority over their husbands. That's what Paul's talking about there. Or that married women are not to exercise authority over other men. I've, I've actually heard that taught before. It's kind of wild to me. But, but the problem is, you can't make that conclusion from this text here. There's nothing in this context that, that warrants you taking a generic word like gyne and saying this applies only to wives, that somehow Paul is only referring to married women. It's just simply not there. In fact, the best straightforward reading of the word is just to read it generically as, as woman or women in general. Now, some, someone argued that Paul is referring to, to just the women in the city of Ephesus, that it's specifically for a narrow group of people, right? And it's not for the broader audience. It's not for other churches. It's not for people in the future. It's just simply for that particular time and place. But again, notice Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach. You see, Paul doesn't tell Timothy, let those particular women in that environment learn quietly. He doesn't say, Timothy, do not permit those women to teach or exercise authority over men. Instead, he says, a woman, speaking very generically, very generally. He says, let women learn. And he doesn't permit women to teach and exercise authority over men. He speaks very broadly here. Paul is making a broad general statement and an ongoing statement. Right? In fact, I want you to use look at, look at the verbs that he uses here in both sentences. The verbs to learn and to permit are in the present tense imperative active. I'm sorry for all the Greek in the, uh, the, in the grammar here, but this is the way we got to get through this. They're in the present tense imperative active, which means he's conveying the idea of not just a one-time thing in the, you know, in the present, but an ongoing action. And what he's saying is, is not just let women learn quietly one time. He's saying as an ongoing teaching to continually let them be learning. It's like when, when Jesus said... The time is now, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's present tense, imperative, active, which means what Jesus is saying is the time is now, the kingdom is here. Be repenting and be believing. We don't stop believing when we put our faith in Christ. We continue to believe. It's the same idea here, to continually be learning. And he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. Again, it's the same tense. What he's saying is, I don't permit a woman to teach, and I'm not going to permit a woman to teach in the future. That's the idea that he's communicating here. The idea that Paul's conveying is both general in its scope and ongoing in its duration, which means you cannot, from these sentences, limit Paul's instructions about learning, teaching, and exercise authority to a narrow group of women simply in Ephesus or a narrow group of, of women you know, to a specific time period. There's just not enough information in the text here to make such a narrow claim. And, and really to do so, is for us to just read something in the text that's not there. We're just being irresponsible if we do that. Which means we need to look further then. We need to look further into the context about this before we can draw our conclusions about who specifically Paul is referring to. And this brings us back to, to then the context of Paul's purpose for writing the letter. Right? What did he say? He said, 
right? He tells us in, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, there's the purpose right there, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul says, I'm writing this letter so that people know how to believe, I mean, behave in the church. I'm writing these things so that people will behave the right way in the church. That, brothers and sisters, is the context that has to shape everything that we're looking at here. Because you got to remember, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, right? Why? To put that church back on track. If you remember, the church in Ephesus had allowed false teachers to get into leadership right, and begin teaching false doctrine, and the church was being led away from its stable theological foundation into error. And so Paul writes a letter to Timothy with three basic instructions. Number one, make them stop false teaching. Put an end to the false teachers. Right? Number two, you need to put better leaders in place. That's why he gives us the qualifications in the next chapter, uh, chapter 3. Right? And then the third thing that he needs to do is to deal with the various behavioral problems in the church that popped up because of the poor leadership right, and false teaching in the church. Because of poor leadership and because of false doctrine, people were doing things in the church they weren't supposed to be doing, and they were behaving in ways they weren't supposed to be behaving. That's the context, right? which is actually what we begin seeing in chapter 2. Remember, Paul opens up and addresses the issue of the prayer life of the church and, 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 a gro and, and growing towards godliness, and then he deals with the men's issues in the church. right? And then he moves on and deals with women's behavioral issues in the church. Right? Which, by the way, then helps us to see what this is for. This is for the women in the church. In fact, this, is, this text is connected to verses 9 and 10. You actually have to kind of see them kind of together. Paul says in verse 9, Likewise, also the, that women should endure themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Some of the women in the church had given themselves over to the, fa the fashion of the elites at the time and the rich in the empire, right? And this would be similar, right, not to, to nice clothes. This would be similar to what we see on the red carpet today in Hollywood. That's what they were imitating, that lavish, explicit, right, immodest uh, way of presenting themselves. Now understand, this is not about stylish clothing. This is not about jewelry or, or having a nice hairdo. That is not the issue that Paul's talking about. The issue you know, was that some women were dressing very inappropriately in their everyday life, much less in the church. Right? They were dressed prov provocatively and sensually. It was immodest and immoral. They were dressed in a way that, that followed the world's pattern. It's like how somebody would dress to go to a club. Right? Which, by the way, continues on right, in the world today, in the broader world around us. I mean, even, even now, at times, you can see, especially if you're on social media, right? You know, the, you, know, you can see people in social media who claim to be Christian, then you'll see them you know, at the club, a club dressed in a way that's, that's really about bringing all the wrong kinds of attention. And we have actually 
you and maybe you have to witness people who have dressed that way in church. It's not about having a certain kind of hairstyle, right? Now, I want you to know the legalist on one end will say, well, this is the reason why women have to wear long dresses all the way down to their ankles and, and never you know, cut their hair and never wear makeup and blah, 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 blah. That's not the admonition here. This is about immodesty in the church, which was one of the behavioral issues in the church with respect to women in the church. And in that context, we have the passage then about women learning and being prohibited from teaching and exercising authority over men. This is about the women in the church in that context. And what we need to see is Paul is not addressing an issue of just wives and their husbands. This is an issue that has to do with behavior, women's behavior in the church. And so this text is about, this is, I think, a fill-in for you, all the women in the church. All the women in the church. And when I say all, what I mean by is all groups of women, right? Rich or poor, right? Married and unmarried, young and old. This text is directed to the women of the church. And, and I want you to understand, this isn't about women in culture, right? This is not us beating up the women in the culture saying, you shouldn't act like that. They're not Christians, right? This, this is not about them. This isn't about women from pagan religions. This is not about women, you know, in general, in the general population. This is about, this is about and directed to those women in the church who call themselves by the name of Christ, who are sisters in Christ. And I would go so far to say, because of the context and because of the grammar and because of the nature of this letter, this is not just for the women in Ephesus, but it's for the women in all the churches at all times. This is who the text is about. Now, again, Paul says, let women, which applies to all women in all churches at all times, learn quietly with all submissiveness. Right? And I'm going to tell you, like, you read that really, you know, with, with too much authority, somebody's going to get worked up because it sounds really kind of harsh. But the truth is, it's easy for us because, of, because this is such a hot button issue for us to bring so much emotional baggage that in the process, we're not actually hearing what Paul is saying and communicating here. Because I want you to look at this word for learn here. Paul says, says that these women were allowed to learn. Let them learn. Which, by the way, what you need to understand is a radical idea in that culture. You see, we're so far separated, we, we missed that. This was a radical idea in that culture because women didn't sit at a rabbi's feet or a teacher's feet learning from them. It didn't happen. In fact, in fact when, when Mary and Martha, when they were arguing, and Mary sat at Jesus' feet, right? that was Borderline scandalous, because it didn't happen. They were not encouraged to take part in worship services. They were not to sit under the teaching of a qualified teacher. They were expected to learn from their dads and from their husbands at home. So what Paul is saying is that women, just like the men, were allowed to come to church and to learn about Christ and about their faith and worship and sit under the authoritative teaching of the Word of God like the men were. One of the things that we miss in this debate is Paul is actually affirming you know, women and men are equally invited to come and learn. Men and women are equally invited to come to Christ. Men and women are intrinsically equal and have value. That is why Paul says that in Christ, 
There is no male and no female distinctions. That's why Paul makes that statement. Some so women are invited to learn just like the men are. And Paul says, let them learn. And then he instructs them how they are to come and learn. He says, in quietness and submissiveness. Now, the word quietness here, again, has probably been overly abused. It doesn't necessarily mean in silence. What it actually means is to be at peace. In fact, this is the same word that we looked at when, when Paul said that we should be praying for kings and people in power so that we may live quiet lives. It's the same, it's the same word. It's the idea of being in inner peace. It's the idea of being tranquil or being still. This is not a command that, woman, you never are allowed to talk. That is not what this is saying. What this is saying is they are to learn in stillness and in peace. Paul is saying that's how they're to come to learn. Not come agitated and looking for an argument. Come peacefully right, and intentionally listen. And then to this, he adds submissiveness, which again is a word that's hated in our culture. The women in the church were to submit themselves under the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. They were to do what, they, what, what we ourselves are supposed to do, which is to recognize God's Word for what it is and then submit our hearts and minds to it. That's the way that they were to learn. So this isn't, this is never, this isn't about never speaking in front of men. And this isn't about women never having, never being able to talk in front of other, you know, women's husbands. And this is certainly isn't about women being subservient in the church. This is not even about women being second-class citizens. They, like the men, are granted the privilege to come and learn. And the way they're to do that was by being at peace internally and submitting themselves under the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. And what you need to realize is that this posture that Paul is giving them is the posture of all people in the church, including the men. The, the, the men in the church as disciples were to sit under the authoritative teaching of qualified men and they were to be at peace, and likewise, the men are to submit themselves to the authority of the teachers and the Word of God. Again, that gets lost because we in America have lost sight of the fact of the authoritative teaching from the pulpit. We don't think in terms of that there's authority coming from here from the Word of God. We think in terms of this is a, a, a pep talk I consume instead of authoritative proclamations that I need to hear and live by. So this is not a picture of women being second-class citizens in the church. This is a picture of Paul saying to the women, you need to be learning like the men do. Well, if that's true then, then why does Paul make a point to address women? Why did he just say that generically to everyone in the church? Well, because contextually at the time, women, because of the culture in that, in that area, Rome and in Ephesus, they were, many of them were very loud and vocal and argumentative. And they were struggling to submit to, the, to male authority. There was an issue in that culture for that very reason. And, and to make things worse, the false teachers were teaching a false gospel focused on the spiritual rather than the physical world. And what they were teaching is that there is no such thing as a physical resurrection. That's why Paul has to address that. There's no such thing as a physical resurrection, resurrection but, but a spiritual one. And what they were teaching is that if you're in Christ, you are already resurrected with Christ. 
you're just now living in this world until you die. And so the life then that they were teaching became about asceticism, where they would abstain from certain kinds of foods. They would abstain, abstain from getting married. They would abstain from, from even sex. And, and the result of that was women were being encouraged to abandon their God-given roles in the family as well as in the church, and they were being encouraged to adopt roles that were never intended by God for them. Which then leads us to the main issue that Paul actually is addressing here. Look again with me at the text. It says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Notice the expression, I do not permit. What we need to understand is Paul is expressing not his personal preference to something. He is expressing that, that he is divinely, he has divine authority to make this binding proclamation. You see, the Apostle Paul writing this letter was doing so by the Holy Spirit. This is Theonustos, and he was commissioned by God to teach this truth. And it's by that authority that he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And again, this word permit carries with it the idea of ongoing action. I don't permit it and will not permit it in the future for women to do these things. And more specifically, the phrase gets translated, I do not permit, carries with it the idea that I'm not permitting someone to do something that they want to do. This is an actual kind of a forceful word, right? These, these women want to do this, but Paul says, I don't permit it. I'm not permitting it. He says, I don't permit the teaching and the exercising of authority of women over men in the church, which tells us then what this is really about. You see, what I need to realize is these two things, these two things of teaching and exercising authority are not unrelated activities. Teaching and exercising authority are activities in the church that actually go hand in hand. In fact, turn with me a little further to 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17. This is, gives us a really clear indication where Paul's going. He says, let the elders, which is from the Greek word presbuteri, which means elder or pastor. That's, what, that's the same office. Right? Let the elders or the pastors who rule exercise authority, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in, and notice this, preaching and teaching. Paul connects the office of the elder or pastor to ruling or exercising authority and teaching. Now, while you're there, turn with me a little bit further to Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, Paul, like he does for Timothy, lays out the qualifications for Titus for elders in the church. And he says, beginning in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He may be able, must be able to teach sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. You see, in the church, those who exercise authority and teach the men, or, when it, or really the general congregation is really what this is referring to in gathered worship, those who perform those duties are elders 
or pastors of the church, right? Not deacons, not just men in, in the church who have the gift of gab, those who teach and exercise authority from the pulpit are those who are pastors and elders. So when Paul says teaching men and exercising authority, what he's talking about is the job of pastors or elders. You see, the issue that Paul is telling Timothy to deal with is the fact that there were women who were stepping into the role of pastor or elder in the church. That is what Paul is talking about. And we know this for certain because the very next section that Paul moves right into Beginning in verse, I mean chapter, I mean chapter three, verse one, Paul addresses the qualifications of elders or pastors in the church. You see, not only were women struggling to submit to male authority in the church, they were also trying to take pastoral authority over the church. And Paul says very clearly in the text, "I do not permit this. Women are not to be elders or pastors in the church." This right here is the central issue of the text. This has nothing to do with women submitting to their husbands. There are other texts that Paul deals with that. This has nothing to do about women outside of the church exercising authority over men in the marketplace or in jobs. It's, this is not what Paul's dealing with. I've heard people actually say that. I've heard people say, well, this text means that women can never, ever, ever be in a position of authority or leadership ever in any way, capacity, or shape. It's hard to make that argument from this text from the context. You can't do it. This is about women in the church who desire to become pastors or elders who teach and preach to the gathered congregation of men and women. This is about women in the church who spiritually want to shepherd the congregation. And Paul says, I don't permit it. And I won't permit it. Women are not to be elders or pastors in the local church. Right? Now understand, that's not me that's saying that. It's what the Word of God says here in the text. And guess what? I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Right? And understand, I, I know, of all people, I know this is really unpopular, right? especially nowadays. Right? In fact, I know this is probably doesn't sit with maybe even some of you who are in the room. I know that, that many in the church at large will push back on this, especially since there's so many popular women teachers today who are just who were popular everywhere, and they're making a lot of money selling books and, and doing conferences. And I believe that a lot of those women actually have done a good job really ministering to women. But many of these women now have wanted to move, we're starting to move towards pastoral ministry. In fact, I want you to know this issue right here, right now in our very time, is the issue that's threat threatening to tear the Southern Baptist Convention completely apart. Because the Southern Baptist Convention from its inception, and, and it was reaffirmed in the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, that women are endowed with all kinds of spiritual gifts and can do all kinds of things in the church as leaders, but there's one role that they can't fulfill, and that is the office of the pastor. And right now, inside the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a wellspring of people who want to throw inerrancy of the Bible out the window and fight this out. We'll see what happens in the next couple months. Right? But Paul makes it clear. That women are not to be pastors or elders in the church. And, and, I, and I tell you, it's not, I wanted to say that. It's just what the text says. In fact, standing up here and saying what the Bible says actually puts a mark on me, a target on me. Because, because I believe what the Bible says, people, including those who profess to be Christians, 
and maybe even some people that, that I, I know and love will automatically, because I hold this view, say, you're a sexist. But here's the thing, if you actually know me, you, if you actually know me and know my, and my, my life and, and, and how I view these things, you'll know that's not even close to the truth. But the thing is, is I must submit my heart and mind to the text. And this is where the text goes. Now, some people will say, well, Paul's not really talking about prohibiting women from pastors, but he's talking about prohibiting women from exercising abusive authority over men. Because the word authority can mean abusive authority. I've heard that argument made. But the problem is, is you can't really make the text say that in this context. And, in, and the word that's used here for authority is really an unusual word. It's only used one time right here. So that means you have to go outside of the Bible to go find a meaning in the broader world of, 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 of Greek literature at the time. And the broader understanding of that word in Greek literature at the time meant simply authority, not abusive authority. Not to mention, it's counter to the context. Paul begins by talking about learning in quietness and submissiveness in the church, and then he talks about teaching and exercising authority, which are pastoral duties. Right? And secondly, Paul in this text gets, you know, segues right into, right? He segues from women not being allowed to be pastors in the church to addressing the qualifications of pastors. And, he, and I want you to notice what he says. I'm going to give you a little snippet of, of, of chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is another word for pastor or elder, he desires a noble task. Notice the gender, he. And if you say, well, that's just a general usage of that word, then let's go to the next sentence. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Right? The qualifications are pretty clear. Right? And by the way, the Bible has no qualifications for female elders anywhere. Right? Paul says the first qualification of being an elder is to be male. Now, right, this is not about abuse of authority. It's about women not being allowed to be pastors. Now, another objection is that we'll say is that this instruction was, was for, for that time in that context, that there were things that were happening then that only specifically applied there, that Paul was specifically addressing theological issues then that aren't relevant for us today. Well, again, that doesn't hold its weight for a number of reasons. Number one, there's no indication that Paul is speaking about any kind of situation like that at the time. Number two, again, the general way in which Paul addresses this and the, the tense of the verbs that, that Paul is actually using here, and most importantly, the idea that this is limited for a particular context is false because Paul doesn't ground his arguments there. In fact, he builds his arguments not on the context of that time. He builds his arguments on three specific issues that go all the way back to Genesis. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis to justify where he's coming from. In fact, look with me at verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, the, for, notice the word there, for, this word here can be translated as because, for or because Adam was formed first and then Eve. You see, Paul doesn't build his argument that women are not to be preachers from his current context. He goes right back to the created order. 
Paul grounds his argument in the created order. Paul goes right back to creation. Paul says, I don't, the reason why I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over men is because of how God created mankind. Adam was created first. Eve was created second. Adam was created out of the dust of the ground. Eve was created out of Adam. Adam was created for God. Eve was created for Adam. Again, if, look, look with me, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. Why? Because he's not complete. There's something missing. There are things in his life that, he, that are missing. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord made, formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see that he would call, see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the, all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's still something missing. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called Isha, or woman, because she was taken out of man. Eve was created for Adam to be the complement and to be his helpmate. Eve was created to fulfill the roles that Adam could not fulfill. And out of that created order comes the understanding of headship and submission. Adam was the head of his family, which by the way includes all of us, because Adam is our federal head. But he is also the head of his immediate family, which includes Eve. Now, Believe me, there's a lot to unpack here regarding marriage and family for this discussion. In fact, we could, we could go there because it expands the concepts of, of leadership and submissive that God has given in His the God-ordained roles. And I would love to spend the time talking about this, but you know, I already have a tendency to go along anyway. So we'll save that sermon for another day. But suffice it to say, that wives submitting to their husband's leadership is a theme that runs throughout all of the New Testament, right? And is even a picture of Christ and the church. This is something you can't deny. Now, I'm not, we can talk about what that means, but the fact of the matter is, is the call to men be leaders in their families and wives to submit to that leadership, right, is a theme that runs through the Bible and is itself a picture of the gospel. But this idea of headship that was established by God's created order, brings with it the truth that there are God-ordained roles for men and for women in marriage. There are God-ordained roles for men and women in the family. And there are God-ordained roles for men and women in God's family, the church. And the thing that we need to understand is men and women are absolutely, without question, equal. They're completely equal in the eyes of God, men and women have the same value before God, but God created men and women with distinct roles in marriage, family, and the church. And that's why Paul appeals to the created order to support his argument, because he is saying it is, it is not a woman's role to be a pastor in a church. Now, 
That's not all that Paul has to say about that. He also says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, that Paul not only builds his argument on the created order, but then he also builds his argument on the fall itself. Paul says, I don't permit a woman to be a pastor or elder in the church because of the created order and because of what happened in the fall. What happened in the fall? Well, Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, Satan didn't come and tempt Adam. He didn't convince Adam to, to fall and to eat. He tempted Eve and convinced her, and she ate of the tree and gave some to Adam, and he ate. Well, why is this important? It's important because of their roles. Look at, again, Genesis chapter 3. There's a detail that's really often overlooked here. So so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes so that the tree was to be desired to make one wise so that she took of its fruit and ate, Right? Now, when you notice, she took initiative to violate God's command, a commandment that had severe consequences for her and the entire world. Right? She ate the fruit, and she also gave some to her husband. And notice it says, who was with her, and he ate. I want you to notice this detail here. We don't often talk about this, but this is so important. He was with her. He was with her when she was tempted. He was with her when she ate. Right? You see, what we see in this text is what happens when men and women fail to live out their respective God-given roles. Adam was there. And Eve's, as Eve's head and leader and protector, he failed her. He failed to exercise a God-given authority that he had to put an end to that conversation. That conversation that Eve was having with Satan. He failed to correct Satan's false teaching. He failed to prevent his wife from taking action based on that false teaching. He failed to be the man that he was called to be. And Eve, rather than seeking her husband's counsel and leaning on him for leadership and guidance, she took initiative and made a decision that she had no right to make. And, 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 and believing the false teachings from Satan, she stepped outside of her God-given role and all of mankind fell as a result. That's why Paul says that she was deceived and that she was a transgressor. But then notice the Bible doesn't ever say that we fell on Eve. Have you noticed that? Paul says that she's a transgressor, but then the Bible says that we fell in Adam. Right? In fact, Paul says in Romans that we died in Adam. He says that it was through Adam that sin came into the world. Well, if she's a transgressor, then why is he still responsible for our collective sin? It's because he is the federal head. It was still his responsibility. He is our federal head because he he was given that God-given role. And because of that, he is still responsible. Just because Eve usurped authority that was not hers does not absolve him from his responsibility. Just because people fail doesn't change our God-given roles. 
Oftentimes people will say, well, hey, you know, the reason why women should be pastors is because men do a horrible job. Just because men fail at their job doesn't mean that, that the roles change. God created men and women equal, but with different roles. Roles in marriage, roles in family, and roles in the church. And the thing that we need to understand is, is from the fall is the fact that there are great consequences in the world when men and women who don't fulfill their God-given roles. Consequences in the family. I have great respect for single parents who work hard to raise their children. They do the best that they can to love their kids. But the truth is single moms can never, ever, 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 ever be a dad to their kids. They just can't do it. They are not equipped for it. And by the same token, single dads who raise their kids lovingly as the best that they can, they will never, ever, ever be able to be a a mom to their kids. They can't do it. Children need both a mother and a father because moms and dads have different God-given roles that they fill in their lives. And by the way, this isn't just what I think. The scientific data bears it out that when children are raised in a a two-parent home, all the statistics and all the measurable statistics are better for those kids. They do better in school. They do better in life. They make more money. They have less issues with respect to depression and anxiety. All of the statistics are off the chart compared to any other group. As much as we love people and encourage them to do the best they can with what they have, the ideal situation to raise children is how? In a two-parent household. This is also why same-sex couples, as much as they may love the child and do the best they can to raise children, will ultimately not be able to give them what they need because some of those roles are going to go unfulfilled. There is also consequences in the church when men and women don't fulfill their respective roles. And again, this is not my opinion. This is is what the data bears out. Every denomination, every major Protestant denomination that has made a point to decide to ignore the clear teaching of the Scriptures in order to ordain women to to the pulpit because of egalitarianism has fallen later on into grievous error. Think of liberal Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, even liberal uh, Baptist denominations. Not only do those churches begin to slowly die off, that's why Protestantism, mainline Protestantism has died off, is because they have abandoned the authority and the inerrancy of the Scriptures, because they have to. And the problem is, is not only do they die off, but those churches then eventually by nature, have to slip off further into liberalism. Every denomination that compromises on the Scripture in this one little area eventually has to open that door a little wider for same-sex marriages and transgender people, and they end up ordaining people to the pulpit that are sexually deviant. Again, that's what we're seeing in America and Canada and the Western world all over. We are celebrating as a culture the the ordination of not just same-sex attracted people, but people that are actually same-sex married. And again, it'll further slide. So Paul grounds his argument in the created order, the fall, and he grounds his argument also in the blessing of a woman's unique role. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But God, but a woman, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. I'm going to tell you right now, this is probably the most difficult part of this whole text, right? Because some will look at this and say, that's the reason why the women need to be barefoot and pregnant. That's their job. You know you've heard it before, right? right? That's not what Paul's saying here. Number one, Paul's not going to contradict the gospel. And what's the gospel say? You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So obviously, this is not a salvation issue by women being barefoot and pregnant. It's not what it means. First of all, the word that's used for saved here is actually better rendered as preserved. Right? There's, a different, there's a different idea Paul's communicating here. He's saying that she will be preserved through childbearing. Now, let that just settle for a second, and I want you to think about what he's... The second thing is is you need to understand that Paul, when he's talking about this, he's still thinking about Genesis, right? This is where he went to. He ground his, he's grounding his argument in Genesis. He's thinking about creation and the fall. And what you need to realize, when Paul mentions childbearing, he isn't strictly just thinking about having kids. He's referring to a woman's unique role in the world, right? Women were created different from men, and that difference is most clearly expressed in the area of childbearing. Why? Because the fact is, men can't have kids. Right? Contrary to what the world might say today, right? when men don't have periods and men don't have kids. It's as simple as that. That is not their God-given role. That is a special unique role that God has given to women and women alone, and it, res- and it represents that unique role that women play in the family and in the church. Right? But of all the roles that God has given women, and there are many of them, of all the roles that God has given women, pastoring the church is not one of them. The third, the third thing to understand is the pain of childbirth which was, came as a result of the fall and the curse, the pain of childbirth will be redeemed because of the promise of salvation that comes through who? Not from Adam, our federal head. It's through the woman. It is through her seed, the promised seed that will crush the serpent's head, comes through a woman's unique role and ability. Salvation literally comes into the world through only women. Christ came into the world through the means of a woman being obedient to her God-given role. It is through God's unique gift to women that salvation comes into the world. Please understand, if you want to write Paul off as a sexist, you don't understand what he's saying here. Does that mean that, that women are better than men? No. It just means that God gave them a specific role that men cannot fulfill. And what Paul is saying is women's contribution to the church and church leadership isn't to come from the pulpit because that's not their role. Their contribution is to come from the ways that God has uniquely equipped them and it's reflected in the metaphor of childbearing. Now, I could spend a whole sermon on that topic alone, but it's not to say that women can't teach in some capacity in the church. Paul's not prohibiting women teaching altogether. It's not saying that women can't do evangelism. That's not what he's saying. It's not even saying that women can't take a man off the side and correct him if he's wrong. It's not what it's saying, because Priscilla did exactly that to to Apollos. She took him aside and corrected him. 
It's not saying that women can't do announcements in some capacity. It's not even saying, it's not even saying that women can't even have leadership roles in the church. We at First Baptist Church, we have a woman who is our children's director. We have a woman who is our VBS director. We have a woman who is our financial secretary. And we have a woman who is the leader of our worship team. God has gifted women and equipped them for lots of different ministry opportunities and even given them the ability to lead in a lot of different capacities. But the prohibition that Paul makes in this text is that women, right, because of their role, are not to be pastors or elders in the church, not because of any other reason except that that's, what, that's not what God created them for. It's not that, they're, that men are smarter or more compassionate, right? By the way, what gets lost in all of this conversation, the root of all this conversation is we've lost sight of something. What we've lost sight of is the most important job in the world, the most important job that has the greatest impact on the kingdom of God, the most important job that changes the world is a mom raising her kids. Is a mom bringing into the world the next generation of believers. No one in the world has more influence in the life of any person in the world more than their mom. I don't care who you are. Mom gives, moms give life to another generation, and they have the ability to love and nurture and shape these children for the Lord. Standing in a pulpit is not nearly as important or as impactful as that is right there. Oftentimes I've heard even my, my wife struggle and say, I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. And I stand and I look at my, my children at home today, and I see how well-adjusted they are and how much they love Christ and how, how really they are all the people that I would ever want them to be. And I look at her and go, that's because of you. You made the sacrifice to raise them. The reason why Christians struggle with that has nothing to do with the Scriptures. They struggle with this because they have bought into the view of women that the world has given them. And what you need to understand is the world hates women. The world hates women. The world is at war with women. The world hates women in their unique role. That's why the world seeks to denigrate women through pornography. What are the pictures of powerful women today? Women who can have, you know, consexual, casual sex with men and, and, and do their own thing and be as lewd and nasty as they, they want to be. That's the picture of power, empowerment in the world today. That's a degradation of women. The world demeans women who want to fulfill their role. Anytime a woman who says that they want to be a stay-at-home mom who wants to raise their kids, they're seen instantly, instantly as unintelligent, unmotivated, and unimportant. Oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom. Hey, can you go do this for me at the store? Because, I mean, you're just at home with your kids, right? The world is out to destroy a mom's self-image, the God-given self-image. It's a lie from the devil. The world is also trying to erase the woman's unique gift. That is why, that is why the world is so quick to embrace transgenderism. Because what, what the world is saying today to all these women in all these areas is, the best kind of woman is a man. That's why they're allowed to compete in sports. Whatever you can do, woman, a man can do better. 
That's why we're going to name you Miss Universe. Most beautiful woman in the world is a man. What? What made women unique is the ability to bring life, and they're saying that's not even what makes a woman a woman. In fact, the abortion right activist is seeking to eradicate the unique gift of childbearing. It is painting in the minds of, of children at school today that bearing children and getting pregnant is a curse to contend with and not a gift from God Himself. That's why they are so hell-bent on destroying the, few, the fruit of a woman's greatest superpower. Now, with that... There are a number of objectives, and there's a whole lot of them to get through, but let me just bring them down into two basic categories. The, objecti the, the objections to this come down to two things. Number one is, I feel. And the second one is, what about her? That's really how the, the objections break down, okay? So the first one is, I feel like... I ought to be able to do this. I feel led to this. I feel called to this. I've heard women say, I feel like I'm gifted for this, so I should be able to do it. Well, the reason why I named the sermon the way that I did is because it's the truth. The truth is greater than, your, than our feelings. Right? What we must realize is our feelings are not an indication of what is right and good. Our feelings must come into alignment with the truth and not the other way around. Again, I've, I've, I've even heard an argument say it. I feel like this is what God has raised me up for. I feel like I have a gift of, of preaching, so I should be allowed to do it. Well, if a man comes in here and says, I feel like I should be a preacher, but then I find out that he's got three wives, I'm going to say, eh, you're disqualified. Well, why? Well, because it says right there in the qualifications, you can't do it. You're supposed to be a husband of one wife. Right? There are a list of qualifications that, that, that men have to jump through. Just because a person feels like they should be able to do something, they ought to be able to do something, we must understand our feelings have to become conformed to the truth and not the other way around. So all the I feels can be qualified in that one category. Secondly is, what about her? And so I, I hear people say, okay, I hear what you're saying, Sherman, but what about Deborah? What about Priscilla? What about Phoebe? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And I go, what about them? What, what about them? Like, where in the text does that actually say explicitly that this is this makes her qualified to be an elder of a church? Deborah was raised up for a specific purpose in the Old Testament, specifically because the man failed to be the leader that he was called to be, and she was appointed as an act of judgment against against the man. Right, Priscilla. Priscilla was absolutely somebody who evangelized the lost, but you'll never see her actually being called an elder or pastor in the church. And even the issues of where maybe there are words like, you know, where, uh, where, where maybe there are textual variants where one variant might say, you know, apostle, and the other one doesn't say apostle. Again, what we're taking is text on the fringe that maybe mentions someone's name in passing and try to build a doctrine off of that. That is a really irresponsible thing for us to do. We don't build our doctrines on passing scriptures. We come right to the text that explicitly that expresses the truth. So when I say that the Bible is the Word of God, I don't say, well, because of something. I just go right to where Paul says, the all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? And then I go to, to Hebrews, where he says the, that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. I go to Jesus, who said, my Word will never pass away. I don't go to fringe doctrines to build the truth. We go to the, 
we go to the core scriptures. You can't take a core scriptural teaching and then refute it. And believe me, I would love to go through all of them, and and I can, but as you already know, I have a tendency to go too long anyway. So with that being said, what do we do with this? Here's what I I want to say. Is that we at First Baptist Church, our statement of faith makes it clear that we don't ordain women to the to the, the office of pastor. We affirm that women have gifts in all kinds of areas. We will equip and train and, and lift them up and help them and support them and do all the things that God has called them to do. But we reserve the position of elder and pastor for men because we believe we're convinced by the scriptures that that's what God says. And that's our statement of faith. And that's how we're going to live. Now, with that being said, there are other churches that don't see it that way. And what I will say is, is that this is not a salvation issue. It's not an issue of salvation. Can a, can a person get saved in a church pastor by woman? Absolutely. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, right? Can women love, love other people, right? And, 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 and help them try to grow in Christ? Absolutely they can. It's the same way with moms, single moms raising kids. They can do it by themselves. But what I'm saying is it's not, it's not the way God intended for it to be, right? And there will ultimately be issues and consequences that, 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 that follow as a result. What I will say is this is an area where we have a lot of grace for other people who see it differently than us. We need to be convinced of the truth. We need to stand firm on, on that and say that as a church and as a congregation, this is what we are going to hold to and affirm and teach. And we will certainly try to point people in the right direction, but we're not going to beat people up, you know, um, if for some reason they don't see it exactly that way, right? We're not going to to make this an issue to where we're going to be like casting them out of the kingdom. Believe me, there are false teachers out there that need to be cast out of the kingdom long before we ever get there, right? And what we need to do then as, as, as a church today is be planted in the truth, walk in grace and in love. And if the subject comes up, we're not going to argue about it. What we'll do is come back to the scriptures and we'll come back to the same things and say, this is why I'm convinced and give them the reason for the hope that's inside of us, and then let God do His work. Let God be the one who brings the conviction through the Holy Spirit, and that we will just continue to love and call them brother and sister in Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.